Chapter 9. First Forgiveness, Then Healing. Seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Luke 5, 20. I have read to you now the narrative of the healing of the paralyzed man. I spoke last about the Pharisees and the doctors of the law who were sitting there. I tried to represent the position of many in our congregations who are just sitting there. I preached to the outsiders of the congregation on the diverse reasons which led to this sitting there. I must confess that I didn't reckon on so large a blessing as I have already seen as the result of that sermon. When I came here on Monday afternoon, that being Pentecost Monday, when everybody is supposed to take a holiday, I was surprised on my arrival at about three o'clock by a friend running up to me and saying, We're glad you've come, sir, for there is a room full already. There was quite a nice number of friends who had come forward from the congregation, and who one after another said, We cannot be sitting there any longer. We feel that we cannot remain among the sitting there ones, but that we must come in and partake of the gospel feast, and join ourselves with the disciples of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. This blessed result of my sermon has set the bells of my heart ringing all week, and I have felt deeply thankful to God for it. I said to myself that, as I had taken one arrow which had sped so well out of that quiver, I would take another. Having spoken to those who are sitting there, I think I will now speak to those who are not just sitting there, but who indeed are the principal persons in the congregation, namely those who are sick and sorry and who need the Saviour. For this paralyzed man, who was let down by ropes through the ceiling, was the most remarkable person in that congregation. We may readily forget those Pharisees and learned legal gentlemen, but we can never forget this man to whom, as soon as they let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus, the Saviour said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. I trust that at this time there are some present in this audience who are not sitting there, but who are already praying, God be merciful to me, and some whose prayers are rising to heaven in accents like these, Lord, help me, Lord, save me, or I perish. You are the principal persons in the congregation both to the preacher and to the preacher's master. He cares more about you and about what shall take place in you than about any of the Pharisees or doctors of the law who may be sitting there. God is glorified in scattering His miracles of mercy where there is the greatest need of them. Our Lord Jesus, when the poor man was let down by his four friends through the ceiling, said to him at once, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Matthew puts our Saviour's words thus, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. While Mark's record is, Son, your sins are forgiven. Well, Jesus may have uttered all of these words, and all the different versions of the story may be correct, for it's not every man's ear that catches the whole of every sentence that is spoken, and we may be glad that there are three gospel writers who have recorded what the Saviour said. There's no real difference in the sense and the difference in the words may only show that Jesus said all three sentences. I'm going on this occasion to talk a little about this man, first before his forgiveness, next a little more about his forgiveness itself, and then a little about what followed after his forgiveness. First, then, 
let us think of this man before his forgiveness. We're not told much about him. If I indulge in imagination a little, you will take it for what it's worth. This man, it seems to me, first had faith which went out towards the Lord Jesus. Evidently, as I read the narrative, he had been suddenly paralyzed. This affliction usually comes suddenly. Men who have been about their business as active as usual have been in a moment struck down with paralysis. This man appears to have been completely paralyzed, so as to have been unable to move, and, as he lay in that helpless state, he heard that Jesus of Nazareth had come to the city, and he believed that Jesus of Nazareth was able to heal even him. It doesn't strike me that his friends would have brought him to Christ unless at his own request. The most rational explanation of the whole proceeding seems to me to be this. He believed in Jesus as able to heal him, and he continued to cry out earnestly, and to pray that he might somehow or other be taken into Christ's presence. He could not stir hand or foot, but he had friends, and he begged those friends to take him to Jesus. Well now, there never was a soul yet that had faith in Christ but what Christ revealed himself more fully in the way of love to that soul. If you know that you cannot save yourself, if you believe that Christ can save you, and if your one anxiety is to be laid at his feet, then he may look upon you and save you. He will assuredly accept you. The one who comes to me, says he, I will certainly not cast out. Whether he comes running or walking, or creeping, or carried by four, so long as he comes, Christ will accept him. And if his faith be but as a grain of mustard seed, our Lord Jesus will not let it die. If there be but a smoldering faith, he will not quench the smoking flax. Do you believe this? If you do, let it cheer you and comfort you. There is something that is well with your soul already. It was better to be paralyzed and to have faith in Christ than to be walking upright like the Pharisees and lawyers who had no faith in him. The apparent wretchedness of your condition is not the real wretchedness of it. It may even turn out to be the blessedness and the hopefulness of it. If you believe in Jesus, I care not how far you have fallen, nor how great is your inability. If you believe in Jesus, you are brought into contact with omnipotence, and that omnipotence will heal you. This man, I believe, further, thought that Christ could heal him, but he began to feel his great sinfulness. I am certain that he did, because Jesus never does forgive where there is no repentance. There was never yet the decree, Your sins are forgiven you, until first there was a consciousness of sin and a confession of sin. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This man, lying there paralyzed, wept at the thought of his past life, his omissions, and his commissions, his falling short and his transgressions, and his heart was heavy within him. He seemed to say to his friends, Get me somehow to the great prophet, get me within sight of this wonderful Saviour, Oh, get me within touch of him, that I may be restored, that I may have this great load which presses me down so sorely taken off my heart. Worse to me even than the paralysis is this awful sense of sin. Take me, oh, take me into the presence of this Messiah, this Son of David, that he may have mercy on me. That, I conceive, to have been his condition 
before the word of pardon was spoken to him. Next, being hopeful himself, he inspired those around him with hope. Of course, they wouldn't have taken him to Christ if they had not had some sort of belief that possibly he might be healed. It is wonderful what sick people can do even when they can do nothing. How, when they seem to be utterly powerless, they find a strength in feebleness. Their very helplessness seems to be a plea where there is anything of generosity left in the heart of those who are near them. So, this man pleaded, I believe Jesus will heal me. I believe He will have mercy upon me. Get me to Him. Do get me to Him. They resolved to do it if they could, and He was willing to be carried to Christ. Four stout, stalwart men said, Yes, we'll get you to Him somehow, though it's a difficult task, for the house is small. The room is crowded, and there is sure to be a crowd at the door. But oh, said the poor man, try to do it, for it's my only hope. If I could but get where Jesus could see me, he would look on me and save me. Oh, get me to him, get me to him. The paralyzed man would make no dispute about how it was to be done. So they carried him to the door of the house, and then they said to the people crowding around, Make way for this poor paralyzed man. And he would say, I pray you, friends and neighbors, make way. But they could not. Perhaps they too had their friends who wanted to be healed, or they themselves had an anxiety to hear the great teacher. So they pushed and pressed to get as near him as they could. You see, those quibbling Pharisees and doctors of the law had got in first, and they blocked up the road. They are always in a poor sinner's way. What must be done? The poor man's bearers would have abandoned the task, I think, but he said, No, don't give up trying to get me in. It's my only hope. Oh, get me to him. Get me near him. So next the man was willing to be lowered into the presence of Christ. There was no other way but to go up those stairs outside the house and to take him to the top of the roof. And he, not fearing as many would have done, said, Alas, break it up and let me down. These four men, belonging to a fishing town, were adept in the use of ropes, and they soon had their tackle ready, and they broke away through the roof. As I told you in the reading, I always feel pleased at the idea of the dust and the debris of the roof coming down upon the heads of the Pharisees and doctors of the law. It always delights me to think that those gentlemen would have dust on their heads for once. Since they were there, they were bound to have a little of it. Of course, when these gentlemen come to a place of worship, one feels bound to be respectful to them. But if they come at an untimely hour, when there is any rough work going on, one does not feel any particular regret. If, when souls are being saved, these gentlemen would have their corns trodden upon, we don't even ask their pardon, or make any apology. Such a work as Christ had to do could not stand still for the sake of reverence to the learned doctors of the law. So the roof was broken up, and this man, though paralyzed, was not afraid to be let down. It is probable that there were no outcries from him when they began to let him down. I think if it had been my case, I might have been afraid that one rope would go a little faster than the other. But no, the man keeps still in his paralysis and courage mingled till down drops the stretcher right in front of the Savior. There he lies upon his stretcher, on the floor of the house, right in front of the Savior's eyes, exactly where he wanted to be. 
Here I address myself to some who would give all that they have if they could but be brought under the eye of Jesus. The one thought of such a sufferer is, Oh, that I could be near him! Oh, that I could be near him! Oh, that he would look on me and cure my helplessness and pardon my sin! What a wonderful picture this scene would make! The crowd is obliged to make way, or else they will have to bear the man and his bed on their heads. So he's dropped down into their midst, and there he lies. The great preacher has been preaching, and he stops. There is an interruption, which is indeed no interruption to him. His conversation is but broken off for a minute, to be illustrated with engravings that men may see in later years, that what they have heard is but the text, and that the miracle which is now to be worked shall be the engraving which shall convey the teacher's wonderful meaning to all eyes. So the poor paralyzed man lies there before the Saviour. Is that where you desire to lie, dear friend? In your deadly sorrow and sin and weakness, do you wish to lie at the Saviour's feet? That's where I want you to lie, and if you will to lie there, that's where you do lie. The Lord Jesus is in the midst of us tonight, and you can at once cast yourself down before Him. Do so. Tell Him about your paralysis. Tell Him how sick you are, how sinful you are. No, you need not speak so that I can hear you. His ears will hear the whisper of your soul. Your heartbeats will be vocal to his heart, and he will note all you say or feel in your inmost soul. Just lie before Jesus, and as you lie there, what are you to do? This man did not speak a word, but, as I believe, he lay there repenting that he should never have lived as he had done, mourning that he should never have wasted his life and misspent his time. I think, too, that he lay there believing looking at that wondrous man and believing that all power was in him, and that he had only to speak the word and the sinner would be at once forgiven. So he lay there, in the presence of Jesus, hoping and expecting forgiveness and healing. Now, in the second place, we are to consider the forgiveness itself. This poor paralyzed man had not lain there long before the blessed Master broke the silence and said to him, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. I think that the four men up on the roof, looking down to see what would happen to their friend, would hardly understand what that sentence meant. They had brought him to Jesus because he was paralyzed, but he had wanted to come first of all because he was a sinner. He did desire to have his paralysis cured, but secretly, in his soul, there was another matter which they might not have understood if he had tried to interpret it to them. It was his sin that was his heaviest burden. And the Saviour, the great thought-reader, knew all about that sin, so he did not first say to him, Get up and walk, but he began by saying, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Observe that the pardon of sin came in a single sentence. He spoke, and it was done. Jesus said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you, and they were forgiven him. Christ's voice had such almighty power about it that it needed not to utter many words. There was no long lesson for the poor man to repeat. There was no intricate problem for him to work out in his mind. The Master said all that was required in that one sentence, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. The burden of a sinner does not need two ticks of the clock for it to be removed. 
Swifter than the lightning's flash is that verdict of forgiveness which comes from the eternal lips, when the sinner lies hoping, believing, and repenting at the feet of Jesus. It was a single sentence which declared that the man was forgiven. Next, remember that it was a sentence from one who was authorized to absolve. He was sent by the Father on purpose to forgive sin, and don't imagine that he has now lost his authorization to forgive, for he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior, to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Jesus is appointed as high priest on purpose that he may stand on God's behalf and declare the remission of sin. What Jesus said was spoken with divine authority. It is vain for a priest to say to a sinner, I absolve you. What can he do in such a case? He, or any other man who does not call himself a priest, may speak in his master's name and say to the repentant one, If you do sincerely repent, if you do truly believe, I know you are forgiven, and I comfort you with the assurance of this forgiveness. So far, so good. But the master alone can really give the pardon. It must come from him who has power upon earth to forgive sins. Now, my hearer, have you never been forgiven? Are you in your pew and yet lying at that dear master's feet, and do you desire above all things that he should say to you, Your sins are forgiven you? And do you believe that he can say it, and will you accept it from him as being by divine authority? If so, I think he says it to you, for in his own word he declares that they who believe in him are forgiven. He says to each one of those who are repentant and believe in his grace, Your sins are forgiven you. Take the pardon and go your way. Do as Martin Luther did in the days of his dark distress, when a brother monk said to him, Do you not believe in the creed, and do you not say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins? Now believe in the forgiveness of sins for yourself. Trust Christ's word, and you will be believing what is absolutely true. Trust it, take the comfort of it, and go your way. It is thus that Jesus Christ, by the preaching of the gospel and by the revealed word of God, says authoritatively to each repentant one, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Further observe that this sentence, although it was but one and was so short, yet was wonderfully comprehensive. Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Not one sin alone, nor many sins, but all your sins are forgiven you. When you go into particulars, you are apt to leave something out. Therefore, the declaration is made all inclusive. There are no particulars given. Your sins are forgiven you. Sins against the holy God, sins against a righteous law, sins against the gospel, sins against the light of nature, sins of this kind and sins of that kind. No, there is no counting. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Murder, adultery, theft, fornication, blasphemy? Yes, in a word, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Friend, your sins are forgiven you. What a far-reaching pardon it is! Your sins are forgiven you. At one sudden sweep of the divine wave of mercy, they are all washed away. 
There's no such thing as a half pardon of sin. I heard someone talking the other day about original sin being forgiven and the other sins being left. But sin is a whole. It goes or it stays altogether. It cannot be broken up into pieces. It is all there or it is not there at all. And it is not there if you believe in Jesus. This blessed and comprehensive sentence sets free from every jot and taint and stain of guilt. Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Observe also that this sentence contained no conditions, and the blessed gospel, speaking to every repenting and believing sinner, gives him absolute forgiveness. Behold, the tally is destroyed, the record of your debt is nailed to the cross, and as for your sins, they are like the Egyptians when the Red Sea swallowed them up. The depths have covered them, and there is not one of them left, however great or many they may have been. If you are now a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, He says to you now by His word, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. I pray the blessed Master by His Holy Spirit to make His word come home with power to many here. Oh, that those dear lips, which are as lilies dropping sweet-smelling myrrh, would themselves speak to you! Oh, that those wounds of His, which are mouths that preach pardon to sinners, might speak to you and say, Your sins are forgiven you! There is no mouth that speaks pardon like that gash in His side, out of which His very heart speaks, as He says, I have loved you and given Myself to death for you. Your sins I have borne on the tree, and put them away once for all. Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Oh, that Jesus Himself might thus speak effectually to many of you! But note that this sentence sufficed the receiver. When the Saviour afterwards raised this paralyzed man to health and strength, He didn't do it to let the man himself know that his sins were forgiven. The man knew that already and didn't need any more evidence of it. But Jesus did it for another reason. To the scribes and Pharisees He said, But, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up, and pick up your stretcher, and go home. Those unbelieving men had not evidence enough that Christ could forgive, but He to whom Christ spoke wanted no further proof than the power of that voice in his own conscience. And if he shall speak to you, my hearer, you will not need any books about the evidences of Scripture, the proofs of inspiration, and so on. To you this indisputable miracle of pardoned sin shall stand forever as a holy memorial of God's mighty grace. It shall be unto you for a sign, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off, that God has pardoned you and spoken peace to your soul. And this God shall be your God forever and ever. To every soul that is in a similar case to that of the poor paralyzed man lying repenting and believing at the feet of Jesus, his word gives the comfortable assurance Believe, and your sins, which are many, are all forgiven you. Believe it, and go your way in peace. Now I close by noticing, thirdly, what followed after this man's forgiveness? He was absolutely, irreversibly, eternally forgiven. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He never plays fast and loose with men, 
He never issues a pardon from his throne and afterwards executes the pardoned sinner. His pardon covers all that may come afterwards, as well as all that has gone before. But what happened to this man? I believe that first there was an inward peace that stole over his soul. If you could have looked into the face of that paralyzed man while still paralyzed and lying there on that stretcher, you would have seen a wonderful transformation. Did you ever see a face transfigured? If you are a soul winner, you have often seen it. All human faces are not beautiful. Some are absolutely repulsive. The countenances of some who have lived long in sin are dreadful to look upon. Yet I have noticed faces that at first I could scarcely endure, but when the persons have been gently led to the Saviour, and they have perceived the love of God for them, and have at last believed, and felt within their soul the kiss of peace, why, they have looked positively beautiful. I would have liked to have had them photographed, only it was too sacred a thing. Speaking of a person's facial features, the grace of God is such an eternal beautifier that the face from which you would have turned away in disgust and said, There can be no good thing behind that countenance, is absolutely changed by the Lord's mighty working. I say not that a single feature may be altered. The person may be the same in feature, but oh, what a marvelous difference there is in the expression of the whole contour of the countenance when free grace and dying love have cast their magic spell over the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has made the dead to live, and the person has been born again in Christ Jesus. Well, that change took place in this man's mind. I am sure it did, when Jesus said to him, Your sins are forgiven you. He was in no hurry to be raised from his paralyzed state. He doesn't appear to have said a word, and those scribes and Pharisees looked on with their mean countenances, but they didn't frighten him. He lay quite still, and was in no haste even for the Master's next blessing. It would come in due time. He knew it would, and he was of good cheer. For had not Jesus said to him, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven? But next followed the man's immediate cure. The Master said to him, Get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Our blessed Master was accustomed to preaching the gospel in a way which I have heard some friends greatly question. They tell us that we ought not to bid men to believe and repent, because they cannot. There are two parties on opposite sides of this question. One says, If you tell a man to believe and repent, that proves that he can, which I do not believe. And others say, If they cannot repent, you ought not to exhort them to do so, which also I do not believe. Though I know them to be as helpless as that poor paralyzed man, unable to lift hand or foot, Yet in the Master's name we do say, as the Master was accustomed to saying, Get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Oh, says one, I couldn't say that to an unregenerate man. Don't do it, brother, if you cannot do it. Go home and go to bed, for what is the use of you for such work? The man who can speak miracles is the one who is needed, and the man who can speak as his Master has bidden him to speak. Surely, the faith does not lie in believing that the man can himself do what he is bidden to do. The faith lies in believing that Christ can do it, and therefore, speaking in Christ's name, we say to the sinner just as the Lord Jesus did to the man with the withered hand, Stretch out your hand, and he does so. Look at Ezekiel, speaking to the dry bones in the valley. 
Ezekiel, do you believe that these dry bones can live? Not I, says he, I know that they're dead. The Lord says to him, Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones. How can he do it? It would be inconsistent with what he said just now. I have nothing to do with that, says he. I was sent by the Lord to do it, and I do it in the name of God. That which may seem perfectly inconsistent with your reason is quite consistent when faith brings in the supernatural element with which God moves those to whom He gives the commission to preach the gospel in His name. The Saviour said to this man, Get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Now observe His precise obedience. Immediately He got up before them. The tendency of a paralyzed person is to be paralyzed in will. There are some persons, no doubt, who have ailments that can easily be cured if they believe they can be cured, because there's not much the matter with them, after all. But this man was completely paralyzed, yet he so fully believed in Christ that he got up and stood before the Master. Then Jesus said, Pick up your stretcher. I think I see him undo those four ropes, and quickly he shoulders his stretcher. Walk, says the Master, and he walks. Go home, says the Master. He might have stopped and said, No, Lord, do let me stay and hear the sermon out. But no, not a word did he say about it, but off he went to his home. Oh, that all were as obedient to Christ as this man was, that having the simplicity of faith they would render the fullest obedience. But thus it often is, that the very chief of sinners, when pardon is given to them, have given to them at the same time a tender conscience, a willing mind, and a yielding spirit. Whatever he says to you, do it, said Jesus' mother to the servants at Cana of Galilee, and that is good advice for you. If Christ has healed you, obey Him, obey Him at once, obey Him exactly, and obey Him in everything, be it little or be it great. If some say it's non-essential, remember that what is not essential to salvation may be essential to obedience. Do it if Jesus commanded it. Do it whether it appears to you to be essential or not. That's not a question for you to ask. That is a heartless, loveless question. He has healed you. Do what He bids you, as He bids you, when He bids you, and raise no question about it. Take up your stretcher and go to your home. If so, He bids you. Or, if He puts it to you, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, then believe and be baptized. Be obedient unto Him who deserves to be obeyed. Now, lastly, this man, it is said, immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. I think I hear what he said. Glory, he cried, glory be to God. He felt so glad, so happy, that he took up his stretcher before them all, and as he walked along he glorified God. And would not you have done the same if you had been paralyzed and had been restored as he had been? And will you not do so? If you have been sin-bound, and Christ has set you free, surely you will take the earliest opportunity of telling others what Jesus has done for you, and you will seek to glorify his name. I did not wonder when a brother lately said to me, I have been spending all the morning in the workshop telling the men that I have found the Savior. 
and one, last Sunday, turned to his wife in this tabernacle and said, I am saved. She said to him, Don't disturb the worship. But I almost wish he had done so. What a mercy it is to be saved! Salvation puts a new sun in our sky and a new joy in our hearts. Believe on Jesus, and this salvation is yours. God grant that it may be, for his dear Son's sake. Amen.